Welcome to Making a Splash, the arts and culture podcast that celebrates swimming and the sea. I'm your host, Amber Butchart, a dress historian and keen but incredibly unaccomplished sea swimmer. A few summers ago, I was invited to China to teach some classes in European fashion history for a design studio. After the course finished, I took the opportunity to travel around for a couple of weeks, catching sleeper trains from city to city. Our time in Shanghai proved something of a respite from the heat and humidity of travelling in July. Its proximity to the coast meant that we were graced with breezes that we hadn't felt when we were further inland. But crucially, the hotel we stayed at had a swimming pool, allowing us to soak the city off our skin each evening. I met some people on that trip that I'm still working with today, albeit on a project that's now much delayed thanks to COVID. And the trip sparked a personal and professional interest in Chinese art and design history, especially the history of the 20th century. Today's guest is an expert in these very areas. Theron Gibson is an art historian, writer and presenter, and she's host of the Art Matters podcast. She's the author of The Ultimate Art Museum for Fiden, and she has another book for Quarto Publishing on the way. On top of all of this, Theron is a doctoral researcher in Chinese art at SOAS, University of London. Stay tuned for our super interesting chat as we discuss the function of rivers and seas in Chinese propaganda poster art, Mao's cult of swimming and the dawn of the Cultural Revolution, and how the humble dressing gown became an unlikely heroic garment. We also consider how Chinese revolutionary realist art differed from Soviet socialist realism, the stories behind some of the most well-known French swimming paintings, or swimming-adjacent paintings, and the pictures from art history that you definitely would not want to swim in. You can head to my Instagram page, at Amber Butcher, to find some of the images that we discuss in this episode. Now, Chairman Mao was always a big fan of swimming. Is that correct? Yeah, he taught himself to swim as a child in his, uh, his, on his parents' property. I think he, he thought that exercise was good for your mind as well as for your body. And he wrote about that a bit and encouraged people to, to exercise so that they could improve both things. And then, of course, you know, if you're good at something, it's a good way to kind of make yourself look good to do an exhibition of this thing that you're really good at. So eventually in 1956, um, he made this very public display of going on this swim uh, and three of China's most famous rivers. It's the Pearl, the Xiang and the Yangtze River. Uh, the Yangtze is the Yellow River. And it was, I think it was billed as kind of celebrating the beauty of China, but I think there was very much so an element of celebrating himself and making himself look very strong and powerful. And there was this a security concern around him doing it in terms of people being able to get to him, but also concern around particularly the Yellow River is really powerful with like these very strong waves. So there was a concern that, you know, maybe you shouldn't be doing this. Also, he's 63 years old in 1956 when he's doing this and he's like, oh, I'm going to do it, you know? And so that, that gives him this other kind of rebellious energy, I guess, and making him look a bit cool, like 
bureaucracy can't hold me down. I'm, I'm going to go swimming. And so, yeah, he, he successfully does the swim and it's, it's kind of a good look for him. But what I think is interesting around this time as well is that the same year, China gets wind that there's a secret meeting that happens in the Soviet Union where they're talking about Stalin and the legacy of Stalin, who had died in 1953. And they're saying, oh, you know, Stalin was problematic and maybe his personality cult was like out of control, that sort of thing. And, you know, they're, the Soviets are having this conversation privately, but it gets back to China. So Mao gets a bit concerned about his own legacy and his own personality cult, which wasn't necessarily as it definitely wasn't as big as it would become later at that time. And it starts to kind of just fire thoughts in his brain about um, his own image. And, and it leads to over maybe the next 10 years, it kind of results in the cultural revolution. But that that's a bit of a ways off. Now, shortly after that first Yellow River swim, in a couple of years later, in 1958, we see the poster, Brave the Wind and the Waves, Everything Has Remarkable Abilities. Um, And it's really interesting to me that water always seems to function as a source of strength in these propaganda posters. So I was wondering if you could maybe describe this image and also explain a bit about the type of artwork that it is and how it functions as propaganda. Sure. So this is a poster um, that is just, the more you look at it, the more there is to see is absolutely, (laughs) it's it's fun is what it is. Um, So we're seeing a group of different kinds of people. Uh, We've got a worker, a soldier, there's a seamstress down at the bottom. Um, and, And this is a really common theme to do and the propaganda posters of this time is it's called like gong nong bing which is focusing on the workers peasants and soldiers and lifting them up as like the backbone of society and so we see all of these people not on a boat just walking across water one woman is driving a tractor across water and they're all kind of charging forward being led by this worker he's got the steel rod and he's kind of i don't know walking on a gear and then of course my favorite part about this is this kind of scientist who's riding a rocket above all of them in the middle of the sky Um, and it looks absolutely like what on earth is this trying to say but in context it makes a bit more sense so This was produced during the Great Leap Forward, um, which was a campaign to drive progress across China rapidly. So they wanted to industrialize very fast. They wanted to, you know, grow lots of food and just everything fast, quick and just like rapid speed develop and modernize Chinese uh, society. Uh, It was a huge disaster. Um, It encourage people to do things like make steel in their backyards and they overworked land in places and and people uh, couldn't harvest any food and and a lot of millions of people died it's they starved to death and it was a huge disaster but this is a poster that was produced during this this campaign and it's based on traditional paintings of the eight immortals from Taoist mythology so that shows these eight very mythical powerful figures who each have a different power kind of like these workers each have a different thing that they're contributing to society um these eight immortals combine their powers i always say like captain planet and then (laughs) from their combined powers they're able to power the ship to cross the sea so that the analogy here is that these people coming together the chinese people and their different skills and talents coming together 
they can tackle difficult things. So yeah, there's the sea, water, it has this kind of mythical, mythological, I don't know, this powerful spiritual presence, but it's used also in a way as like something to overcome. It's like overcoming the power of nature or difficult things. Yeah. Then in 1965, we see an image appear called Swimming Practice to Defeat Rivers. And this image overwhelmingly links water and being in the water with heavily militaristic themes. Could you tell me a bit about what's going on here? Yeah, so this shows a group of men doing swimming exercises in what I assume is the Yellow River because it's very clearly yellow and it's also very choppy water. And this is coming from a time when in the late 1950s, when Mao had the idea to have a kind of people's militia. Um, China is huge, like very huge. And his idea was that if you empower the people to kind of protect the borders um, themselves and you don't necessarily have to form like formally train an army to do that, just make everyone able to protect the country and it will be more efficient. That was his idea. Um, so in this poster, we're seeing a group of men who were doing their own uh, training exercises in the water. And there are people looking on like smiling and admiringly and they have their own weapons. So they're probably training up as well. And it's interesting, we see two women in the group as well. So it's, there's this idea of like, everyone can do it, like men, women, anyone can take part in doing this. So yeah. And it's interesting, the the title saying defeating rivers, because it definitely plays into that idea of water being this, this powerful thing that you, you kind of have to overcome. So Mao does this great swim in 1956 and a decade later he decides to repeat it. And this has been, you know, you sort of, you hinted at this earlier, it's been described as sort of heralding the start of the Cultural Revolution. But it also spawned many images of him in a dressing gown. Now that to <laughs> me was so interesting. I love it because it seems like such an unlikely heroic image. Yeah. But it also seems to me that that's exactly what we're seeing. That's what he's being constructed as. So could you tell me a bit about this moment and the art that represents it as well? Yeah. So the Great Leap Forward, as I said, was a massive disaster. And that became clear pretty soon. And there were other campaigns around this time that resulted basically in Mao resigning as the chairman of the People's Republic of China, even though he stayed the chairman of the Communist Party. So that's a bit confusing because there's different chairmen of different things. Um, and he, so that was in 1958 that he resigned as chairman of the PRC. And then this other guy, uh, Liu Xiaoqi, took over and Mao was looking at the decisions that he was making and he didn't like what he was seeing. He felt like it maybe it was taking things kind of out of the communist way. And also, again, he's still looking at Stalin's legacy and he's becoming paranoid that, you know, I'm getting old. What are they going to do when I die? You know, what are they going to do to my legacy and what are they going to say about me? So he had the thought that, you know, he was he's kind of was at his best when he was leading a revolution in like the 30s and the 40s. So he had this idea to kind of create a new cultural revolution against this wayward direction that he felt that the country was taking. And so he announced that in 1966. And then a couple of months later, he decided to do this swim at, on the anniversary of the original 1956 swim. And again, he's making a huge show of, you know, I'm still with it physically, mentally, I'm still powerful and capable just as much as I was, you know, 10 years ago. 
And I mean, there were even rumors that he had like died. So there was like, there was just a lot being said about him and that he wasn't able to be a leader anymore. So this, this stunt is definitely, it was a stunt <laughs> is him trying to kind of counter that narrative. It, it, it totally worked and swimming became very cool, very popular. And this painting here by Tong Xiaohe was done five years after the actual events uh, during the height of the Cultural Revolution. Strive Forward in the Wind and Tides shows, as you say, Mao in this white dressing gown and he's surrounded by these young people. He's standing on the boat and he's the, the, the Yellow River waves are lapping up. And he's also got the Wuhan bridge behind him, which is significant because this is a symbol of like modern China and the things that they've been able to achieve and build and develop. And the, the kids around him are from the, um, the Red Guard, which is this kind of youth group. It was largely students who really fervently like followed Mao thought and his beliefs. So it's interesting that, you know, he didn't swim with these kids. He swam with his bodyguards, but he's shown here amongst these kids and these young people as kind of like, it's got like, Hey, fellow kids energy, you know, it's like <laughs> I'm down with the kids and we're all <laughs> in agreement about what the right cause is and that sort of thing. So um, yeah, it's, it's giving, it's conveying this kind of image of Uncle Mao and that he's this figure who like understands what the youth want and and yeah, that sort of thing. It's brilliant, this painting. And the uh, I, I recently did a, an online art class with you, which was fantastic about Chinese propaganda art or Chinese art in general, actually. And you talked about uh, similar paintings in terms of the sort of rosiness of the cheeks, of the face as well, being a particular stylistic decision in art of this time. Could you tell me a bit more about that? Yeah, that's the revolutionary realism style. So there's uh, socialist realism, which was um, born in the Soviet Union. And then there's China worked over many years to kind of develop their own take and a distinctly Chinese take on um, these kinds of images. Revolutionary realism shows these almost theatrical scenes that are very happy. They have lots of rosy hues to them. And there was this idea particularly with Mao, that he should be shown as red, bright, and shining. And that just means he has these kind of red cheeks and he literally, it's like, he looks kind of greasy a lot of times. Like the light is just shining off of him. Um, like he's just radiating the sun. And so in this painting of him on the boat, for example, we notice that he's lit ever so slightly different to everyone around him as if the sun is just shining directly onto him. So that's that kind of aesthetic. And if you were to show Mao maybe with harsh shadows or with a little too much, you know, shading or something like that, that would be like really bad. You'd, you'd get in a lot of trouble for that. They were called black paintings. And so, uh, yeah, this is an example of a just very kind of happy, joyful image that they wanted to, to do at that time. It's so fascinating hearing in so much detail how artistic techniques were used for this particular propagandistic uh, purpose. I mean, I, I know obviously China is not 
alone in this uh, you know it's, it's something that functions in cultures all over the world but hearing it in so much detail is just so fascinating so this swim itself was 1966 this second swim and a decade later still the swim was again commemorated shortly before Mao's death and these images are remarkable too uh, what do they depict and what do they tell us about how poster art had evolved by this point so people started to after this i guess what is this this second swim in 1966 people started to like if they weren't into swimming before they were really into it and they would go out on the anniversary of um that swim and they would do swims in their like local rivers what have you and it was like a big thing but then obviously the 10-year anniversary was a, a, a bigger anniversary of that swim which itself was the 20-year anniversary of the 56th swim um so people came out and we we have a poster here that shows lots of people standing together they've got balloons and flags flying and everyone's in their swimming trunks by the water it's very exciting but what's interesting here is that mal isn't actually taking part in this swim so in this poster commemorating the 10th anniversary it's just a giant painting of Mao from the last time he did the swim. And the reason for that is that he was not well at that time. In fact, he died a couple of months later. I'm not actually sure how long he had been ill at that point, but he was really um, yeah, not in a good state and had possibly had a couple of strokes or, or something by that time. So um, instead of showing him himself, they show him with uh, as an image, uh, which is a common thing actually to do in posters to show Mao as a portrait within a picture, which kind of introduces him in places that he wouldn't have naturally been for one reason or another, but you can still kind of involve him in the mix, which is fun. They're great. And it really shows an evolution of this particular type of art as well. We've, it seems to me that we've moved away from these images, which are also present, as you say, in this, in this current, these current images of just Mao or Mao with a few select people. And instead, it's like we're seeing a mass of people, seeing people en masse, and it's, the focus is still really heavily on youth. We've got some children, we've got, you know, what look like adolescents in one of these images, the balloons, it's incredibly celebratory, but also this notion that it's this real mass movement. There are hundreds of people swimming in the sea at this point to commemorate, or swimming in the river, to commemorate Mao and all that he's done for the country. I, I mean, I, we see large groups of people and posters throughout the period. It depends on really what they're showing. There are lots of posters from maybe the founding ceremony or May Day celebrations or various things. Um, so I think that artists would be maybe showing um, those large crowds of people, depending on, you know, what whatever they were depicting at the time. Sometimes you see Mal very intimately alongside you know, a small group of people because he's celebrating some particular contribution they, that they have done. For example, there's a, images of Mal um, awarding people because of, you know, special contributions that they did at their factory work or that sort of thing. So, um, yeah, it can, it can really vary. And can you tell me more broadly about your PhD research? Yeah, so I'm studying at SOAS and I'm researching images of Mal specifically from throughout his life, basically. Well, that's not necessarily true. I, I'm, I'm more focused on the PRC period. So from 1949 up to 1976. And it's really interesting to learn as I, as I researched this, you know, I, I went into it with, 
ideas about what I thought I would find. And I'm just, I've been really surprised to, to learn more as I go along. So, yeah. And what was your route into this? What did you study before to end up doing this, uh, your PhD in Chinese art? I, so I started learning Chinese when I was maybe 13, which makes it seem like I would be fluent in Chinese, but I am not. So that's deceiving. <laughs> um, and then later I majored in art history without any particular focus or interest for my BA. And, but I minored in Chinese studies so that I could carry on a bit with the um, Chinese language and that sort of thing. And then just over time, they started to kind of converge to where it was like, oh, maybe I should also, I'm kind of interested in Chinese art as well. And I took a course on modern Chinese history and it was just fascinating. I just like, it's just like really interesting, everything that was going on during this period. And so I started getting interested in the art because the art related so much to the politics of the period. And it just kind of organically kind of came together. I think it's so interesting, which that's why I study it, I guess. But I just, yeah, yeah. I think that people, they're like, why on earth do you study this of all things? But I think when you get into the stories and the history behind it, it's just like, it sucks you in. Now, moving away from Chinese art, I was also keen to hear about some notable swimming paintings from throughout art history. Um, and you've chosen a really well-known pairing, a pairing that a lot of people probably recognise, but maybe don't know that much backstory too. So these are two paintings by Georges Seurat, very famous for the pontalist technique. Uh, so these images are a Sunday afternoon on the island of La Grande Jatte and also bathers at Asnières. So these are from the sort of 1880s, I believe. But could you tell me a bit about these images? Yeah, when you asked me about swimming in art, I mean, this is immediately what came to mind. I'm sure there are many others, but this is what I thought of first. And the Sunday afternoon, well, first, the, the pointillist technique, I should ex explain first, I guess, which is um, kind of what it sounds like. It's using a bunch of little points or dots of color close together to create a wider picture. And Seurat was interested in that because he thought that it would give images a more vivid appearance. Um, he was really into color theory. So it works like your computer printer, you know, like the CMYK, it prints little dots of those colors close together. And then when you zoom out, it's like it creates other colors. So it's that it's a similar concept. So this is like his magnum opus, A Sunday on La Grande Jatte. Um, it's like his best work or best known work, we should say. And it shows a group of wealthy people on this island that was known as like a hangout for wealthy people. And they're all dressed very nice. They all have on, you know, very fancy, the women have on fancy gowns. They're standing in the shade. If they're not in the shade, they have like a hat or they have an umbrella that they're carrying. And it looks like a really wholesome scene. We see two little girls, at least two, maybe there's a third sitting down and they're, there's, standing there and it looks, it just looks very pleasant. But what I love about it is that the longer you look, you see that maybe something is going on here. And maybe there's a reason why he's showing all of these people in the shade. 
And the the story is that this island was like a known place where wealthy people could, or wealthy men would pick up high-class prostitutes, basically. And so we see this woman standing next to the, the riverbank, and she's got uh, a fishing pole. And so now the idea is like, oh, maybe she's fishing for men or something like that. You know, she's picking up people for work. And then we also see this couple um, to the right of the painting, which is kind of closest to us standing there together. And you think, oh, what a, you know, a married couple, something like that. But she's holding this, this monkey on a leash, which is quite odd. And also there's a dog to the front who's kind of darting away. And when I see a dog like that, you know, dogs are often a symbol of fidelity and kind of older artworks. And, you know, it's not uncommon to see maybe like a woman who's getting ready to get married with a, with a dog or a couple, a newly married couple with a dog. And it's a sign of their, you know, fidelity and union. And, and so to see this dog running off from her is kind of like an alarm bell to me, like mm, something, something is not right here. And then the monkey can sometimes be a symbol in art of kind of your sexual desires or that sort of thing. So we're getting the sense that maybe this is, this is a man who's here with a, you know, a sex worker, and not his wife, and um, and the fact that the dog is running off, maybe he has a wife, and he is not there with the wife. And actually, all of the dogs are kind of not really next to their owners or paying attention to their owners. I think there's at least three dogs here. Um, so that's quite interesting. So then when you flip to the complementary painting to this, which was actually painted first, the bathers at Anier, it shows the opposite side of this, the River Seine in Paris, this, the, this riverbank. And we see working class people on this side. And they're actually dressed for the occasion. They've, you've got guys sitting here with no shirt on, they're in swimming shorts or whatever. And a couple of people are actually in the water. And there's interestingly a dog sitting here and he is laying nicely next to his master. And yeah, it's just a really different energy to the opposite side of the painting. And this guy who's in the water has his hands up to his mouth as if he's calling out to the other side, to, the, to these wealthy people on the other side. And some critics have said that maybe Sorrel was saying that he's commenting on, you know, the poor morals of the upper class at this time. And saying that the the people on the other side of the bank are saying, come on over here, like we're the future, that sort of thing. So it's a really interesting duo of works to look at together. That is so fascinating. And I actually had no idea about the backstories to these incredibly well-known works of art. That just makes so much sense. So it's almost like the, the first one you discussed is sort of comment on the hypocrisy of the bourgeoisie potentially. Yeah, a bit, yeah. Because it, it reads as one way initially, and then the longer you look, you're like, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. And I just love this one, the one of the the people in the water. They just look like they're having such a nice time. It looks like it actually, it's similarly going back to what we discussed about the use of water in some of the Chinese art poster images that we looked at. This here, it looks quite nourishing. It looks quite refreshing. It's very, very calm. It doesn't have the sort of the strength, I suppose, in the virility of the water in the Chinese images, but it certainly looks nourishing and has an almost mythic quality in that respect. Yeah. And I think also you notice in, in Le Grand Jatte's side, everyone is very rigid and stiff and very, they almost look like they're carved from wood or something. And, and he was inspired by, I think, some, some um, 
either classical or Renaissance uh, sculptures, actually, when he did that side. But they look very stiff compared to the bathers on the opposite side of the bank. There's more curvature in their form. They're actually in the water. They seem to be having more fun. I want to be on that side. <laughs> I want to be on that side too. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, in terms of your relationship with swimming, do you remember learning to swim? I don't remember the exact moment I learned to swim, but I do remember going to summer camps and there being swimming lessons. So I, I remember various points of having swimming lessons. I I remember I was thinking about this the other day. There was one time that, you know, they drop batons or something in the bottom of the pool and you learn to like go down and pick them up. And I went down and it was like too deep and I almost didn't come up in time. And I was just like, oh my God, I almost died in my head. <laughs> terrifying. <laughs> it is terrifying. It is terrifying. But anyway, yeah, I think I, I remember um, swimming to me is very much tied to memories of like summer camp. And where was that? Where was the summer camp? I, I lived in Virginia at the time and it was at one of the, um, it was at Hampton University. The university there had a summer camp for kids and I would go, um, yeah, they, they would have like swimming days or there was different activities, you know, tennis and you just did different lessons and things. Yeah. And what's your relationship with swimming now? Um, I, we, we don't have a relationship. (laughs) Consciously uncoupled. (laughs) Yeah, we do. I mean, I don't have much opportunity to do it. I have a five-year-old and before the pandemic, he was doing swimming lessons because I I do think it's a good skill to have. Well, what's your favorite place that you've ever swum? I went to this. Okay. Technically this wasn't swimming really, but I went to Key West and they have, there are just lots of little islands in Key West. And you can walk between some of them because the water is so low. Um, so I have a memory in high school of walking between these islands. And it was just really beautiful. Like the water is so clear and you can see animals like fish swimming or stingrays or whatever it was, squid or something. I can't remember now. And it's just I, I really enjoy being in water. It's very beautiful. It's very peaceful, um, especially if it's blue, clear water. Yeah, that's like a really calming memory. Oh, that sounds dreamy. That sounds so nice. Who would be your ideal swimming companion, real or imaginary, dead or alive? And just also to caveat, when I say swimming, like I'm a really bad swimmer. I'm awful at swimming, but I love being in water like you just described. So this can be someone you don't necessarily have to swim. You're just in water, enjoying the water with them. Okay. well, the answer, if it was Mal, that would help me a lot with my PhD research. (laughs) I could just ask him some pretty direct questions and summarize this up pretty quick. Um, so I think that from from a getting my PhD done standpoint, um, that would probably be the smartest choice. Yeah, outside of that, I'm not sure what makes someone a good swimming companion, you know? Something to ponder, certainly. Certainly. Someone who likes to someone who's like who's has my style, which is like uh walking around in the shallow bits of a beach, drinking something cold and alcoholic and um, having a leisurely time. That's that's the ideal person. <laughs> lovely. That sounds lovely. Now, if you could choose any painting from history to swim in, not including the Mao images, because you've already you've already swum with Mao. 
you've got all the information you need to finish your PhD. And now you can choose any other painting from history to swim in. Which would it be? All of the paintings that come to mind don't seem like a place I would want to be swimming. You know, I think of like Turner, like, oh, I don't want to. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think I want to swim in a Turner. And then I think of like Hokusai and I'm like, well, that's a huge wave, isn't it? I don't want to swim in that. <laughs> so I'm like, so it's hard. Um, I, I can't think of one. Maybe it would be, in fact, the picture you talked about earlier, Bathers at Asnier. Well, certainly, certainly, yeah. Of the, if I had to choose between those two, I'm choosing their side of the riverbank for sure. <laughs> they have fun over there. Absolutely. They've probably got beers over there. <laughs> Now, if you could swim anywhere in the world that you haven't previously swum, where would it be? I think I'd, I'd want to be in like Southeast Asia somewhere. It just looks so gorgeous. You see these pictures of Bali or something and it's like beautiful blue water and these houses that go out on these jetties and like, oh, it just looks like a dream. I would go there. I would have like a banana stand that I owned and I would just sell bananas and live by the beach. That's what I would do. Oh, that sounds lovely. I'll come with you. I'll be your ideal leisure. Yeah, come leisure on. Leisure water companion. Come on. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. And thanks to Ferrin for being such a fascinating guest. Head to the episode details to find more information on Ferrin's work and research. And you can find some of the images we discussed at my Instagram page, at Amber Butchart, where you can also find out about upcoming guests. If you've enjoyed this, please do rate and subscribe so you never miss an episode. See you next time on Making a Splash.